0: Eddie, 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 I Eddie, I Eddie, I Shalom, shalom, friends. Great to see you. Great to see you, all of you. Thank you for being here. Our, our topic today, debate 21, capital punishment versus abolishing the death penalty. Let's start with the poll. <laughs> Do you believe the death penalty is just? Number one, we should use the death penalty often. The wicked should be struck down. Number two, we should use the death penalty very rarely, but in some crucial cases. Number three, I'm very torn. It is important to have the death penalty, but it's not always used justly. Number four, we should abolish the death penalty completely. Please cast your vote. Give you a moment here. Mike and Jenny, I always wonder how you vote. Um, uh, Maybe you've been married long enough that you're just on the same page on all of these, but which one of you cast the vote? (laughs) Okay, Pam, we can see results whenever we're ready here. Okay, 20% are very torn, 80% said we should abolish. Very interesting. Okay, friends, here we go. Torah has a lot to say here, so buckle your seatbelts. The text of the Torah, read literally, mandates the death penalty, of course, as punishment for specific transgressions. And yet, opposition to the overuse of capital punishment is embedded deep in Jewish religious psyche, and indeed in halachic tradition. The Talmudic rabbis taught that a court that puts others to death too often is a murderous court. How often? Here's what we learn from the Mishnah in Makot, one 110. A Sanhedrin that executes once in seven years is considered tyrannical. Rabbi Elazar Benazaria says, once in 70 years, Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva say, if we were members of a Sanhedrin, we would ask the witnesses questions that they would be unable to answer, such as, Was the person murdered perhaps afflicted with an unseen fatal disease and thus no person would ever be executed? But there's a counter argument, of course, also here in the Mishnah. Rav Shimon Ben Gamliel said, if a Sanhedrin would execute so rarely, then they would multiply murderers in Israel. So Rav Shimon Ben Gamliel thinks the death penalty is a deterrent, right? The previous position as we saw from Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva is that um, we need to limit the death penalty so we don't have blood on our hands. The rabbis teach that based on the value of human life, there are major repercussions for being guilty of taking a life. Here's from the mission of Sanhedrin. Um, it says Genesis here, but this is from, that's just one part of it. How were the witnesses instilled with fear not to testify falsely? Be aware that capital cases are not like monetary cases. In civil cases, one can make monetary restitution and thereby affect his atonement. But in capital cases, he is held responsible for his blood of of the one accused and the blood of his potential descendants until the end of time. For so we find in the case of Cain, Cain, who killed his brother, that it is written, translated literally, the blood of your brother is screaming out to me. That's Genesis 4.10. It's continuing here in the mission of Sanhedrin 4.5. It does not say the blood of your brother, rather the bloods of your brother, meaning his blood and the blood of his potential descendants. Therefore, man was created only to teach you that whoever destroys a single life from Israel is considered by scripture as though he destroyed an entire world. And whoever preserves a single life from Israel is considered by scripture as though he had preserved an entire world. Now, it is important to remind us that some texts have from Israel and some just say, a single life, a single life in total, not just from Israel. So here we're reminded that to kill a person is to kill a world, is to, take a, is, to, is to destroy the world. And yet if the rabbis did away with the death penalty as a practical matter, why is it in the Torah in the first place? The rabbis explain concerning a wayward son. This comes from Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 71a. But it never happened, and it will never happen. Why then was this law written that you may study it and receive reward? Rav Yonatan said, I saw him and sat on his grave. So this is an interesting Talmudic explanation. Why do certain troubling things exist in the Torah that were never done? They said, the Torah says to stone a wayward child. Oh, that's very disturbing as a form of punishment of a child who's rebellious. And the Talmud says, no, no, it's there, but we don't do that. Why is it there? Just so we can learn it. There's a value to the learning without it being practical. So this is an interesting move the rabbis made here. Perhaps in our case too, we can infer a reason from the inclusion of the death penalty, references beyond an interest in application of the literal signification of the text. Those references can teach us about the gravitas of crimes worthy of the death penalty. As such, the rabbis can now reinterpret the punishment but always do so knowing that God wants total justice, even though humans aren't necessarily capable of implementing it or even necessarily in understanding what it is, right? That the Torah wants to say, God wants total justice in this world. And yet rabbinic law comes to say, wait a minute, there can't be total justice in this world. We have to have something less than total justice in this world. And so it says here in Babakamba, 83b, Does the divine law not say eye for eye? Why not take this literally to mean putting out the eye of the offender? Don't think this, since it has been taught. You might think that where he put out his eye, the offender's eye should be put out. Or where he cut off his arm, the offender's arm should be cut off. Or again, where he broke his leg, the offender's leg should be broken. Not so, for it is laid down. He that smites any man, and he that smites a beast, just as in the case of smiting a beast, compensation is to be paid. So also in the case of smiting a man, compensation is to be paid. And so, of course, this is not compensation for murder. Murder is a capital crime. But in the case of damaging a human body, as Gandhi famously said, you know, an eye for eye makes the makes the world blind. So too the rabbi said already said that, right? Don't read the text literally. They're saying over and over. Okay. So another explanation is that the death penalty can be imposed by the heavenly court, as it were, even while the earthly judgment must be more lenient. Here's what it says in Sanhedrin 37b. It has been taught, Rav Shimon Ben Shetach said, may I never see comfort if I do not see a man pursuing his fellow into a ruin. And when I ran after him and saw him sword in hand with blood dripping from it and the murdered man breathing, I exclaimed to him, wicked man, who slew this man? Is it either you or I? But what can I do since the blood, the life does not rest in my hands for it's written in the Torah at the mouth of two witnesses, shall he that is to die be put to death? May he who knows one's thoughts exact vengeance from him who slew his fellow. It is related that before they moved from the place, a serpent came and bit him, the murderer, so that he died. From the day the temple was destroyed, although the Sanhedrin was abolished, the four modes of execution were not abolished. He who is worthy of stoning either falls from the roof roof, or is trampled to death by a wild beast. He who merits burning either falls into the fire or is bitten by a serpent. He who is worthy of decapitation is either delivered to the Gentile government or or brigades attack him. He who is worthy of strangulation is either drowned in a river or dies of suffocation. So here we see this idea of how the heavenly court intervenes in the world in place of an earthly court. So to be sure, the rabbis did try to find a way around directly executing, although it's historically unclear if or how this was actually done. One who was flogged twice for having violated the same transgression whose punishment is parmite, death imposed by heaven, And then sinned again the third time, is placed by the heaven, by the court, in a tiny cell where there is standing room only. And he is fed meager amounts of bread and scant amounts of water, causing his stomach to shrink. Then is fed bare barley, which causes his stomach to expand until his stomach bursts. One who commits murder without proper witnesses, there may be witnesses, and it is certain that he committed the murder, but there's a technical problem with the testimony, is placed into a cell and is fed meager amounts of bread, and scans water, and then is fed barley until his stomach bursts. So friends, here's what's happening over here in um, the Mishnah, in Sanhedrin. It is true that the rabbis want to do with the death, do away with the death penalty. It is true that we never know if they can actually do this approach that is offered here, but they do say, wait a minute, we can't do the death penalty because we don't. we can't meet all these technicalities of how it would be done, but there's a passive way of doing it. Putting someone in a cell and basically, it's not so passive, but basically causing their stomach to burst. And again, is this once again theory or was it ever put into place? It's unclear. How can capital punishment be enacted post Sanhedrin in any event? The rush, the rush, Rabbeinu Asher Ben Yahil wonders this himself, 14th century Spain. He wrote in his responsa You surprise me by asking about a capital case. In all of the countries that I've heard of, it, of they do not judge capital cases except here in Spain. When I arrived here, I was most astonished how they could judge such cases without a Sanhedrin. I was told that this is by permission of the king and also that the Beit Dins, the Jewish court's judgment saves lives since much more blood would be spilled were they Jews accused of crimes to be judged by non-Jews. So I allowed them to continue their custom but I, I have never agreed with them about taking life. Okay, very interesting by the rush. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in 1981, skipping forward like 600 years, wrote a fascinating open letter to Governor Hugh Carey in which he dealt with the question about the role of the death penalty in the context of a halakhic justice system, such as what the sec- selections from the Talmud and the Rush discussed above, address and its role in the context of a secular American style, uh, American style legal system. By the way, Hugh Carey was the governor of New York from 1975 to 1982. So here's what Rabbi Moshe Feinstein wrote in his Igrot Moshe. The Torah reserves capital punishment for those sins which are very serious, such as murder, kidnapping, sexually prohibited relations, and idolatry. The, per, the perpetrator in these cases is unrestrained and is capable of doing whatever disgusting and cruel acts in the world that are in his heart that he thinks are for his benefit. However, the death penalty is not administered out of hatred to evildoers or fear for the welfare of society, because the Talmudic tractate, Baba Messiah 83b, tells us that God will punish transgressors. So, on the one hand, the purpose of capital punishment is to let people know the severity of these prohibitions, so they will not transgress them. On the other hand, the laws of capital punishment emphasize the importance of each soul and of other concerns. As a consequence of these two factors discussed above, there were almost no Jewish murderers because of the awareness of the severity of the prohibition of murder. And because they were educated by means of the Torah and the punishments of the Torah to understand the seriousness of the crime. There were not, they were not simply afraid of punishment in the sense of getting caught, but were afraid of the crime itself. However, this use of the Torah system to run society was only when the crime of murder was not common but was simply the result of someone's great lust or some quarrel concerning money or honor, like a passion crime. But when people killed simply because it was viewed as insignificant and the murderer was simply a callous and cruel person, or similarly, if there was a great deal of murders and wickedness, then a different system of law was utilized that was concerned with the pragmatic question of stopping killing and the goal becoming saving the society. (laughs) Rav Moshe taught here that while the state of New York certainly has the right, from the perspective of, of the moral element of the Torah's approach to criminal justice, to execute criminals, the practical outcome of death penalty would be too frequently unjust. So, so Hebra, even when a death penalty could be upheld, we see that God wants dignity for the executed. Okay, so here, let's return to the mission of Sanhedrin and the Babylonian Talmud of Sanhedrin 46 feet that picks up off the mission. <coughs> All that have been stoned must be hanged, says Rabbi Eliezer. But the sages say, none is hanged save the blasphemer and the idolater. How did they hang a man? They put a beam into the ground and place, and, and, and a piece of wood jutted from it. The two hands of the body were brought together and in this fashion, the body was hanged. Rabbi Yosi says, the beam was made to lean against the wall and one hanged the corpse thereon as the butchers do and they let it down at once. If it remained there overnight, it would transgress a negative command. For it is written, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall surely bury him the same day. For that he, it, it, that is hanged it is a curse of God. As if to say, why is this one hanged? Because he blessed the name, that's a euphemism. He blessed the name and the name of heaven was found profaned. Furthermore, everyone that allowed his dead to remain overnight, transgress the negative command. But if he had allowed to re, it to remain unburied by reason of honor due to it, to bring for it a coffin and burial clothes, he does not thereby commit a transgression. So friends, by the way, as you know, it, um, um, it, Christians of an anti-Semitic bend over, over history have argued that Jews killed Jesus. Um, and of course, one of the absurd dimensions of that is that crucifixion is, is, is not a form of Jewish capital punishment. As you see, hanging is here, but crucifixion is the furthest thing from how the Talmud even imagines a form of death penalty. The Romans did this death penalty. Anyways, in a case like this, we see here, even where there there theoretically is a death penalty, um, we see here that um, the body must taken down and be buried immediately because it is a shame to God uh, for that person to be hanging there. And also imagine if an innocent person was executed. How religiously and morally terrifying. It must be the highest priority to avoid this from taking place. Certainly over over the wicked being mistakenly saved. So as we have seen, the rabbis will certainly not categorically oppose the capital punishment, saw the death penalty as so extreme a measure that they all but removed it, removed it from their system of justice. In contrast, our American system today lacks the highest safeguards to protect the lives of the innocent, and in certain cases uses capital punishment all too readily. We do not naively believe that everyone on death row is completely innocent of any crime. That would be naive. Yet too often people are convicted for crimes they did not commit. We all agree that a responsible government must have a strong justice system that maintains order and security, and that includes appropriate punitive measures. More harmful to our justice system than not catching the guilty, however, is punishing the innocent. Owing to their socioeconomic situation or lack of access to legal resources, wrongly convicted people often have no real opportunity to respond to an overwhelming legal system that makes the establishment of innocence difficult. The consequences of this system that makes the establishment of innocence the consequences of this system are not only fundamentally unjust to individuals, but also produce racially and otherwise disparate outcomes, and therefore skew all sorts of social markers on an inappropriate basis. Additionally, it is the taxpayers who are required to pay the exorbitant amount to maintain death rows. It is time to see the death penalty for what it is, not as justice gone awry, but as a symptom of the injustice and status quo. You must rescue those taken off to death, it says in Proverbs 24, 11. Friends, among the reasons for wrongful, wrongful convictions, six stand out to me. Number one, why are the wrongful convictions? Number one,
1: eyewitness misidentification. Number two, false confession. Number three, ineffective lawyering. Number four, police and prosecutorial misconduct. Number five, junk science.
0: Number six, unreliable testimony. If you have questions about any of the content of those, we'll explore those in our Q&A. In the interest of time, I'm just gonna list them for now. How many prisoners are truly innocent? Experts have offered varying percentages in the last decades. Samuel Gross and Barbara O'Brien estimated at least 2 to 3%. John Gould and Richard Leo put it at 3 to 5%. James Liebman and his team placed that estimate at 7%. And a more recent estimate by John Roman and his team placed its estimate at 5%, except for sexual assault, for which the wrongful conviction rate may be as high as 15%. Jewish thinking strongly upholds the principle that the innocent should be spared undue punishment. When God reveals to Abraham his plan to destroy stone and Amorah, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18, Abraham challenges God. Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? If there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you destroy and not forgive? When God offers to spare the cities, if there are 50 righteous people, Abraham continues to raise the stakes by lowering the number of the righteous until God decides that if there are even 10 righteous people, God will spare the cities. Abraham doesn't press any further, but one might presume that any entire city can't be destroyed if even one individual were were innocent. Reading the text this way, we can imagine from the time of Abraham, it it has been established that punishment should be reserved for the guilty and against all odds to the contrary the innocent should be spared. Today, there are those who are dedicated to ensuring that the innocent do not languish in jail. The National Registry of Exonerations, a joint project at the University of Michigan Law School and the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University Law School has now reported 2,858 exonerations since 1989. The registry highlights the need to scrutinize convictions, especially in the states with the most exonerations with the two leading states being Illinois and Texas, to ensure that they were honestly obtained and that the defendants had sufficient and competent defense. The Innocence Project, founded by Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield of Yeshiva University's Benjamin Cardozo School of Law in 1992, is a group that utilizes DNA testing and other state-of-the-art technology to establish the innocence of falsely imprisoned inmates, the staff of lawyers and Cardozo Clinic students, along with allies in many states, thus far have exonerated 301 prisoners who have served an average of nearly 14 years, and 18 of whom have, had been on death row using DNA evidence. There are more than 50 Innocence Projects in the United States under the umbrella of the Innocence Network. They need our support. One particular case illustrates the great value of the Innocence Project for American society. In 1974, James Bain was convicted of raping a nine-year-old boy in Florida. The primary evidence at the time revolved around the blood type of the semen on the victim's underwear. The jury believed the prosecution's claim that Bain's blood type, AB, was the same as that found on the scene, when in actuality, the blood sample was blood type B. Once DNA evidence became available, Bain tried five times to get the circuit court to examine his case, but was rejected. Finally, after the Innocence Project became involved, DNA evidence was re-examined, confirming that Bain was not the rapist. James Bain was exonerated and released in December 2009 after serving 35 years for a crime he did not commit. While we need a justice system, we also need a system of justice. Members of our society certainly deserve to be kept safe, which sometimes means that the perpetrators of crimes should be punished and sometimes means that other methods of rehabilitation, some of which might also be viewed as harsh, are warranted. But we must equally ensure that the rights of the innocent are protected. If a prisoner is found to be innocent, then the prisoner should be set free and given fair compensation. Former District Attorney, Governor of California, and Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren was well aware of the often coercive methods by which law enforcement obtained confessions and convictions and how scrutiny needed to be applied to ensure that only the guilty are convicted and incarcerated. As he said, life and liberty can be as much endangered from illegal methods used to convict those thought to be criminals as as from the actual criminals themselves. So friends, to conclude here, we must support the work of those who labor to ensure that our criminal justice system is truly just and equitable. This is nothing short of the championing of justice over inequity. And as a community, we must support their work Jewish community leaders should call for an end to the problematic practice of imposing the death penalty and also for the development of a fair, equitable paradigm of restorative justice. Okay, friends, I'm gonna pause here. I'd love to hear your thoughts and questions.
1: When,
2: when, you, when you look at the, the death penalty, I, I think you have to look at it in two different ways. One is the morality of it. And if you decide that it's moral under certain circumstances, you have to look at the system and application of death penalty, how certain is there of the right person? And what are the methods that are humane? And and, and those cross over, but they they both. Now, in the Talmud is, is looking kind of at both, but, but, but more to morality, would you say?
0: Great question, Michael. Thank you for that. Um... I think this is, uh, this is open to debate. And as we see, uh, first of all, let me take a step back. Uh, everyone remembers the one case Israel used the death penalty, right? The, the famous Eichmann trials. And there continues to be a debate today as clearly that case was warranted, many argue, while some argue this also is, is a stain, if you recall, uh, the famous, uh, famous debates that emerged from there. Um, in any case, I think that, as Mike is pointing to, I think that either extreme would be a distortion of the Jewish tradition, the extreme that says we should readily and easily and quickly use the death penalty or the opposite extreme that says um, uh, that the Torah and the Talmud in our tradition is fundamentally opposed to death penalty. Clearly the idea is there in the Torah, in the Talmud. It continues to exist for, for some cases. And I think the point of debate is because of how it is, can be misused today. Should we continue to fight for it to be extremely limited? That could be one fair Jewish position, or completely abolished, given the potential for abuse. And I think you're right. What the rabbis are doing there is um, is debating um, the potential for mistake. Um, for mistake. I don't think they're debating whether someone who clearly did it wrong. Is deserving of it. I think what they're doing is they put enormous legal measures in place, making it impossible to convict someone. You had to have two witnesses show up, and the two witnesses had to say, Excuse me, Plony, do you know you're about to kill um, person X? And Plony has to say, Yes, I know I'm going to do that. And then they have to say, Do you know, Plony, that if you kill person X, your punishment will be Y? And they have to say, Yes, I know that. And then they have to completely go through this protocol to make sure that there's no possible um, lack of intentionality, no possible lack of awareness of the consequences in a way that is totally unattainable and making it impossible. And so I think you're right. I don't think they're debating the morality of the Torah saying the Torah was immoral to have the death penalty. I think they're debating whether we can and should continue to employ such a device, now uh, such a vehicle. Now, this is not the only time the, the Talmud has radically done away with a Torah law. As we already mentioned, the wayward child. Of course, there's the practice of sota, the, the, the sota practice. Of course, there's the practice of slavery. Fill in the blank. There's many cases where the Torah abolishes or really does away with a Torah law. Um, I think, uh, and I can think of some others that maybe some would propose. Actually, here's another radical case, Shemitah or even the idea of interest, there's a whole bunch of ways that these things get reinterpreted.
2: Let let me add a a third consideration. And that is the Torah was written, 3000 was put into (inaudible) a written format almost 3000 years ago. General societies and as time evolved, general systems of morality have evolved and changed. And I've always seen in the in the um in, in the um not the comic that that these are ways that rabbis are adapting what's in the Torah as their guidance to evolve within the societies and the general moral and legal environments that they're living in yeah, to help that's Jews. A
0: great point. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's a great point, Mike. I, and I think that that's what we continue to see. Those who have maintained the Jewish tradition continue, based on the morality of their time, to continue to engage in this um, this hermeneutical endeavor um, and this constant process of reinterpretation based on the morality of the day. And Judaism was, by and large, not a revenge society, not a um, a a. Um, uh, a, a, a shame society, um, more a guilt society than a shame society. And thus, this idea of taking revenge is one could claim mostly an anti-Jewish idea. Really, Judaism fundamentally is about mercy and justice rather than some kind of revenge notion. So I think you're exactly right. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate that point because I think we can ask ourselves today that that is not only um, inevitable that we interpret based on the morality of our day. It is also the case that that it is maybe morally mandated. Now, there's a number of cases in the Torah that weren't reinterpreted until now because 20th century American morality was such a radical break from history. Think about women's rights. Women's rights are so new, so new, right? Pre-modernity, forget even just pre-modernity, pre 20th century women's rights were like non-existent. Think about LGBTQ rights. These are a few decades old, right? Think about even the notion of racism, how how new such an idea is. And so um, uh, with that progress, our notion of rights, our notion of, uh, our notions of, um, of justice and dignity that emerged one might say we're not only inevitably going to reinterpret, but maybe even are mandated to do so following that line. So thank you for that. Yeah, Eddie, you want want to jump in?
3: Yeah, definitely. Thanks for this amazing class, Rabbi. I think that this is a topic that's such a great area in our communities. I think um, I'd rather hear what what your thoughts on. Does the death penalty eliminate the opportunity for chuva? Uh, an opportunity for redemption uh, within people? Does that like automatically cut that off? And I'm interested to hear what are the rabbinical thoughts on that?
0: I love that. I love that question, Eddie, because um, one of the great principles of the Torah is that everyone can do teshuva. We have probably met people who we thought could not. We have certainly read of people in history that we are convinced could not. Perhaps there were some people in the American political scene we are we have been convinced could not, and yet um, the idea that no human is irredeemable, and so there is a Jewish prohibition against doing anything to block another person's teshuvah, right? We cannot prevent a person from their own growth and repentance, Um, and so um, one of the principles there is, according to the Rambam, what does teshuvah actually look like. How do you know someone is a penitent? They are confronted with the exact same opportunity to make the exact same mistake. And in this case, they choose not to make it. If someone has no opportunity of freedom, and this is a case against our, our prison system in general, there's no real freedom, then there's no real opportunity for growth. There's no real opportunity for teshuvah itself. So I really appreciate that point. And I think the death penalty also makes clear um, that block from uh, from that potential. It basically says, you are no longer created in the image of God. You are no longer capable of a certain type of growth. Now, by the way, it's worth reminding us that going back to Mike's point about the context of of, of where the Torah emerges from, the code of Hammurabi, which is the code of justice just before the Bible, Um, says if you kill a slave, it's a monetary crime. It's a monetary crime if you kill a slave. This is not a human being. And then the Torah comes as, no, a slave is a human being. If you kill a slave, it's a capital crime. And so that itself was progress to say that you are liable to the death penalty if you kill the slave, because we don't have any notion of a human being worth less than another human being. That doesn't exist as a Torah principle. It's, It's heretical antithetical to the Torah that some rich person matters more than another, or a man matters more than a woman, or a person of this race over a person of that race, or a scholar over, over um, you know, a, a, a less learned person. And so yes, how do we create a society that enables, as Eddie's pointing to, the potential for teshuvah for all people? Now, by the way, let me add one other thing before someone jumps in. One of the other exceptions given was the the, the melech. The melech. The king in the in, in, in Jewish law is given exemptions to because there's different branches of government. The king was given an exemption to operate by the laws of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin might be prohibited to put to death someone that everyone knows is a murderer because of the legal precautions they put in place but the king is allowed by executive privilege to kill that person. That was a, that was a kind of a loophole given in the system to how they could uh, avoid this. Again, I don't know if that was done, but the king was given that loophole. It's kind of like, I, I, should, I don't know enough to make this comparison, but the way I think of it as in a time of war, some of the executive privileges that a president would have, that were, they could bypass the, the legislative branch uh, in a time of war at a time of capturing uh, terrorists, and then you look at Guantanamo Bay and what emerges there, and what happens when there's a clash between the judicial and the legislative and the executive, and and how far does the executive branch have power to to kill or to um, or to imprison without fair trial um, in a time of war? Okay, someone else. Who else wants to jump in? Can I say
1: something? Yes, please, Della.
2: Yeah, and I think um, some people really, um, I guess, yeah, this is like a very interesting subject because I think um, death penalty is not a full justice. If let's just assume a dictator like Saddam Hussein, when they executed him, I almost felt like that wasn't fair because this guy has done so much bad in this world that it's almost like, you know, this death is too easy for somebody who has done so much bad, you know? And I know this is like a very sinister way of looking at it, but sometimes I feel like a lot of people do so many bad things that it's like, it almost feels like that's gonna be just an easy way out for a lot of them.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting, Della. So you remember the Jeffrey Epstein case? Yeah, exactly. People (laughs) were so mad that Jeffrey Epstein um, had the the right um, or there was some scandal that he was he was able to kill himself in prison because they felt that that was an easy way out of his punishment that was deserve- he was deserving of a year or two ago, I don't even remember when this was. Um, and so um, um, and so you could say someone you know other dictators who are merely killed that that is actually an easy way out that actually uh, death row you know, or life imprisonment gives them the chance to have a, a more full punishment rather than getting out of that. So, so, so that's an interesting perspective. And one other thing to add when we look at comparative international law is the idea that Kant's in categorical, categorical imperative. Everyone remember Kant's categorical imperative? Here's how it works. And um, I don't want to imply that it's a Jewish principle, but it's an interesting thought uh, experiment. Kant says you should only do what should be universalized. You should only do what you think is okay for everyone to do, right? And you can't say I'm going to do it, but it's okay if I do it. I'm just one person, right? Basically, being like, oh, it's okay if I like keep three extra dollars from. you know, from Target, because it's a huge corporation, what do they need the $3 from? But if everyone did that, um, that, would be, that would be horrible. So it's not only that the rule of stealing is wrong, if everyone did what I'm gonna do, that would be a, a broken society. And so another way to think of that is, even something that might be just for me to do in my case, what if everyone did it? We might say, we don't want uh, uh, tyrannical societies to have the death penalty. We think that Iran, uh, having a death penalty is bad. We think that Saudi Arabia is doing. Who are they going to kill? They're going to kill gay people. They're going to kill women who are not dressed properly. They're going to kill based based upon a fundamentalist is- Islamic approach. People that we disagree with that um, uh, with that with that penalty, and thus we too should model that. Now, what does it mean to have exceptions? Let here, Let me give a a good case for an exception. Some of us may believe that that the U.S and maybe even Israel have the right to nuclear weapons. And yet we might also believe we should work towards global nuclear disarmament, right? Where we should encourage other countries to have less um, atomic weapons. So do we wanna have our cake and eat it too? We say, US is gonna be the responsible one. We're gonna have it, but we're gonna make sure no one else has it. Or are we gonna have to say, look, if we want other countries not to have it, we're not gonna have to have it too. So if we believe other countries can't execute, use the death penalty properly, do we also have to model that? Or are we gonna say we operate differently? These are questions I don't have an answer to. Who else wants to jump in here? Yes, back to Eddie.
3: Okay, so in, in, in those footsteps, how, how do we define justice? Because if we're looking at like the death penalty as being as a form of justice, but at the same time, that might be different interpretation of justice. How do we look at it through uh, a a biblical stance like where where do we draw the line of of what is justice versus what is not because I I concur with Della's statement that for for some folks death is almost a gift right where there is no systemic justice or um, folks weren't brought upon um, the actual uh, revelation of justice Um, I've been uh, reading a a, a book where um, folks are going after Nazis who have ran into uh, South America and there is a clear argument that they're making that they should not kill the Nazis, that they should hold them responsible and bring them into court and and that way they could um, be met with justice. But what does that necessarily mean? How is that interpreted?
0: Yeah, awesome, awesome. Great. That's a great point, Eddie. So a few things there. First of all, um, justice is incredibly complicated of an of an idea, as you know. And we often use justice as a slogan, "Set, set a cure of justice, you shall pursue." But there are so many different theories of justice in philosophy. What is just? Um, in and there's so many different, uh, by the way, um, uh, uh, fields of justice. There is distributive justice. How should money be distributed in a just economy? and economic justice. There is criminal and punitive justice. How should we punish in our society? Then there is reproductive justice, gender justice, right? There is social justice, which often has to do with identity issues like women and LGBTQ and and the poor. There are so many different strands of this and so many different theories of justice that it's so hard to talk about justice as any unifying idea at all. It is fundamental to the Torah that we live in an unjust world. If anyone wants to live in a just world, that's not the Torah, that, right? We live in an unjust world. Maybe the next world will be just, the Olam Haba. But our job is to make this world more just knowing it will always fundamentally be unjust. There is no way to rectify what Nazis did. No matter what punishment they get, no matter how much reparations they pay, there is no way to rectify American slavery no matter what we what, true, what we want to do, right? There is no justice in response. If someone murders a child, there is no justice, whether the person has imprisonment for life, person is killed, there's never justice. In fact, after George Floyd, when people said justice for George Floyd, they didn't really mean Derek Chauvin should go to jail for life, right? I mean, they partially meant that. They partially meant there should be accountability in this case, but they really meant the system has to change, right? And justice is not just rectifying this one situation that George Floyd's murderer is held accountable. It means that the that that, that, that the, the the system of police accountability, the system of of police brutality, has to evolve. And even when it evolves, it's not justice because you can't correct the past. And so, um, and, so this and, and is really, Rabbi, yes, please, Mike, yeah, who defines justice? Right, right. Who defines justice? Right. And so that is at stake right now, too, who defines justice. And, um, and just looking at the American system, does the executive branch define it? Does the legislative branch define it? Does the ju- judicial branch define it? And if it's the judicial branch, which part? Look at what happened in Texas on abortion, right? And what's the role of the various levels of court? Does American democracy work to define justice? Does the, the will of the people, the majority of the American people, help define justice, what justice is? And what's the role of religion in this? I don't want Christianity defining justice in America, nothing against Christianity. So what does that mean for our Jewish values to be a part of the discourse? Do we want Jewish values to be a part of it? Do we want, again, as Heschel famously said, I I embrace the separation of religion and state. I reject the separation of religion from the human condition. And so our values need to inform the human condition, our view of society, and yet, we see fundamentalists of every religion who want to impose the truth of their religion upon the, 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 the legal system. Um, and so justice is so complicated and I think it's worth us debating what is just and how do we determine that? And, and let me offer a few models of that. One model of justice is called, um, is called deontology. And in deontology, it is based on rules. It is based on rules um, and it is based upon duty. And that goes back to Immanuel Kant. Another system is consequentialism or utilitarianism. A third might be virtue ethics. So let's just compare the first two because in America today, we are in a deontological model rather than a consequentialist model. What does a deontological model say? Just deserves. You deserve punishment for what you did wrong. You deserve it. What does a consequentialist model say? We should do what is consequentially best for all parties. What is best for the victim? What is best for the perpetrator? What is best for the taxpayer? What is best as a deterrent in society? And so in looking at a punishment, someone would say, you did crime X, you deserve to be punished with crime Y. That's what you deserve for your crime a consequentialist would say, let's figure out what is going to enable this person to grow and change. Let's figure out what's going to enable the victim to heal. Let's figure out what's best for the taxpayer to ensure that the taxpayer is safe and not paying too much. Let's ensure what's going to like deter more crimes. Let's figure out what's going to be the best for everyone. Okay. So those are just two of the very different ways of
1: determining a justice system. Anyone else? Yehuda or Rabbi Biller or Ari, anyone else want to weigh in at all? Yeah, just, uh, sorry, I,
2: I can't uh, have my camera running right now. Um, to, just, I've always thought that deterrence don't stop criminals from doing anything. Like someone who wants to rob or kill won't change their mind based on Oh, now there's a death penalty. I better not do it. So to impose a death penalty because we think it's going to stop someone from doing something, I think it's ludicrous thinking. Um, so that's that's just. I just want to add that into the discussion.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. I I I have read some similar ideas around how the model of deterrence um, actually does not work. Uh, of course, it is human nature to want to avoid. Um, punishment and so everyone will slow down their car when they see a cop in the rearview mirror right um you are gonna drive slower when your ways tells you there's a cop coming up in a half mile people people make decisions in society based on fear of punishment that is true and yet a case like this am i gonna murder or not is a whole different category am I am I not gonna murder because the penalty is death penalty as opposed to life imprisonment it, it, it's unclear that that works as Rabbi Biller was pointing to him. yeah yeah I think I think there's
2: a deterrent that there will be some punishment you yeah, know like yeah. if there's no law yeah. that people might right. do anything yeah. but to put a harder punishment you think that will stop the person I, I don't think I don't think I don't think that does much thank you thank you
0: Yehuda you get the last word here
2: so I um, was just curious. Um, all this talk of, of justice and punishment, and a, a, a nation that isn't applying justice properly—the the, celestial—what is it doing to the nation's soul on a celestial level? And 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 that's something that we don't doesn't enter into the conversation a whole lot. And, and I think that it's important to aim for a, a, a just justice system. Yeah. Otherwise there's gonna be ramifications for us as a whole.
0: Wow, so. wow, Yehuda, thank you for that. And this is, this is a beautiful spiritual point here. If you recall in the Yom Kippur v. Dewey, in the Yom Kippur confessionals, we say we have done a lot of horrible things, that each of us is not done when i hit my chest and i say i did this and i did that and i did that, i say wait a minute i didn't do that so what's going on over there that i'm saying that and one interpretation of that is that we are a collective and we are not only complicit um in things we haven't done but we are a part of this a collective soul a collective soul a collective nation a collective people. And the blood stain is on us. We need rituals of purification from such things. If you recall, I, I, I like to do the the, the ritual of egla rufa. When when we hear that an immigrant dies in the desert trying to travel across, there is the there is the ritual of egla rufa that I want to bring back. What, what what they what it says in the Torah is there's a foreigner who um is is found dead at, at, at your border and no one knows how this person died. The leaders have to go out there and wash their hands because there's guilt on our hands that this person died there, right? And so too, like when someone is killed um, and we don't have total certainty around this. And yeah, this affects the soul of the nation. You know, I, I, I hate the phrase playing God because I think that phrase can be misused. Some people think we shouldn't do medical research because we're playing God or something like that. I do think that we should be bold and engage in things like medical research. But there's other areas where we might say we're trying to play God when we take a life, when we take a life, and that that affects the soul of the nation. So friends, to conclude here, there is a rich debate throughout our tradition still alive today around how we understand just courts, how we understand this idea of capital punishment. And yet, at the least, we can see that this has gone awry in many societies throughout history most certainly today as well on around, along racial justice lines, economic justice lines. And um, that regardless of whether we think there is some small place or no place for capital punishment today, that we can at least take a stand against the places where this is being abused um, in our system today. Friends, wishing you a blessed day and can't wait to see you next week. And, and there's many reasons I can't wait to see you next week. Um, And mostly because I just love to see you all and to learn with you, but also because our topic next week of number two, of debate 22 is Auschwitz versus Sinai. What should be the central Jewish narrative today, Auschwitz or Sinai? See you next week. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world.
1: Thanks for listening.